0: Daniel's parents uh, have them visiting with us occasionally. Greg Pastors in the wonderful state of West Virginia, and we appreciate Daniel's life and also they mean a lot to us here at our church. I want you to continue to pray for her. She's been in the hospital for the last couple of days, Judy Hall. Hopefully she'll be able to come home uh, today. She doesn't have any infection, but uh, just pray for her her comfort level and uh, the doctors will be able to to determine next steps and so forth. Also, uh, I believe it was on yesterday, Patty Snell's mom passed away. Many of you remember her. She attended church here for over a year, maybe about two years, and. Uh, She, just in the last couple of months, became increasingly uh, more sick and frail. So please pray for Patty and their family at this time. I know you'll do that, that God would uh, uh, minister grace to them. Philippians chapter 2. We'll look there at our text in just a moment. I've asked the Lord to to take his words and to be a special blessing uh, to you. I know this about the truth that I'm going to give you from the Bible this morning, that it will be a help to you, and as it helps you, you will be able to help a lot of people, uh, not just in your family, but in this local church and in other places. We've been talking some about unity. This chapter in Philippians 2 talks about unity, and it also talks about humility. When I was in Bible college, I think it was my, my second year, I was not home when this happened, but a church that i, I dearly love uh, had called a business meeting, and the church was filled to capacity. The church was had separated into two groups by that time, and so uh, th- they were going to to vote on a particular issue, and uh, some some of the people that were there had not been there in decades because of a particular issue that they were voting on. My parents attended that church, the church that I grew up in. They voted on the matter after the vote was taken, the church split. And my parents stayed there at the church, and some good people, some very good people, left the church. And uh, dear friends of my parents... Left, good friends of mine, people were hurt. And besides God's name being uh, hurt and defamed with some people, the worst part besides that were the children, the teenagers, and college students that, that witnessed the debacle, not just that night, but all of the things that led up to it and heard. In that meeting and a couple other meetings that led up to it, but that meeting particularly, uh, angry feelings that were expressed. And out of that, a listen carefully how I say these things, a multi-generational impact that affected hundreds of people. And if you go on into the generations, even uh, thousands of people because of, of what had happened. Uh, in the church that night. In one of the churches that I I served in, it was my my first day, the very first day I was on the job, and I got in the the car with the pastor, and I could tell that that something was troubling him. And so we were there in the parking lot of the church, and he didn't even turn the car on. We just sat there for a minute, and um, he said, Rick, I, I, uh, there, there's a man in the church. I didn't know anybody at the church. It was my first day at the church, so I, I didn't know the parties that were involved. But he said, there was a, a, a layperson in our church, and he, he was disgruntled with some decisions that I had made. And so he uh, had access to a mailing list to the church. And he, he got the mailing list and he sent out some grievances that he had with me and sent it out to the en- entire church and, and bashed my, my name and so forth. And I remember uh, sitting there for this is over 40 years ago uh, with, with my pastor, uh, listening to him, uh, heavily, heavily discouraged. And if I were, I'm not going to, if I were to ask uh, you, how many of you had been involved in a particularly a church split or a church disruption or a church quarrel and ask you to visibly express that by the raising of the hand, many of you would would lift up your hands because it leaves a mark on you. You You don't forget those things. But here's the thing about church splits is they do not happen in a day. And they're usually, almost always, almost universally over minor issues and almost always over a very small, I mean an extremely small portion of the people. Very small. But the disunity has been going on for a period of time. Now, the Bible teaches, if, you, if you're a Bible student, you know this, and experience teaches that conflict is inevitable. Uh, Jesus said that in Luke 17. He said, it is impossible that offenses will come. You're going to be offended because we live in a fallen world. And the very moment that sin entered into the world, Adam and Eve began to have conflict with God. They hid from God. Up until that time, they walked with God daily. They hid from themselves. They experienced conflict with themselves. Their family was divided. Their first two boys, Cain and Abel, the first murder that occurred was to the first two human beings that were born. Think of that, where one son murdered the other son. And while the church was not ex- in existence in those days, if it had been, there would have been a church split. Now, I'm, I'm not preaching this message because we're having a church split. In fact, th- this will help you in your home, it will help you at work the, when, when I give you the message and, and you go through this. This is a preventive message as we just basically teach through the Bible. But D.L. Moody, the, the great evangelist who traveled to England and had meetings, but also particularly in America, he made this statement one time. Here's what he said. Moody said, I have never yet known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's people were divided. I want to say it again. I have never yet known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's people were divided. Now, he he was in charge, humanly speaking, for many, many incredible movements of God. He was a very simple man. He was an uneducated man. But God used this man. That's a very simple but a very profound statement. There's something about a couple, about a family, about a church that is in unity. And if God wants to work in your family, if He wants to work... In a local church, that church must be a unity. Now, sometimes the word unity is bandied about today, and there must be truth. The root word of unity is the word uni, one. We have one Savior, we have one Bible, we have one Lord, so forth. But there's also a, there's also a, a spirit of unity. What does that look like? And I want to give you the, the big idea. This is basically the big idea I want to talk about, and then I want to develop uh, that idea. And here's the idea I want to develop in the message, and it's from the Word of God as you see it. Here it is. That unity is protected. It's not caused. God gives unity. We can't cre- Unity is not created organizationally. The church is not an organization. It's an organism. It has life. Now, organisms are organized, but you cannot organize unity. That's uniformity. You can put a uniform on on a team and them not being unity. That's uniformity. That's external. Unity is always internal. It's the life of God. But unity is protected in a culture, whether it's a family, a business, a nation, or a church, Unity is protected, and that's my concern today, that God would protect the unity in my heart, with my family, with you and our church. Unity is protected in a culture where the heart of God is exhibited in the people through their words in times of distress. Now, that's a lot of words I use, but I want to say it again. That our unity is protected... In a culture, whatever that culture is, where the heart of God is exhibited in people through their words, the way they speak, what they say, how they say it, in times of distress. And I want I want us to look at evidences of unity today. What are the evidences of unity? This is not the cause of unity. Now, these things will, will protect it. These things will aid in it but if you do the opposite of what i teach from the word of god today it's not going to protect it it's going to disturb the unity by the way these principles and we're just going to deal with one today because i I feel like this is what the lord wants us to have um, also apply to peacemaking where there's agitation where there's already a disturbance Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever worked with customer service. When I worked at Radio Shack in Chattanooga, uh, we didn't have a customer service department. If you were an employee, you you were customer service. And maybe you've been in a job like that where people came to you. These same principles apply. For example, I'm not going to give you this one. I'll just throw it out. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 1, a soft answer turns away wrath. A soft answer turneth away wrath. Does that mean every time? No, it's a general principle. The faster we speak, the louder we speak, the harsher our tone. It raises the ire of someone. A soft answer turns away wrath. So I want us to look at the text here about these evidences of unity. Notice in Philippians chapter 2 and look at verse 1. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies... And and last week I taught on this, that the word if there is not conditional. It has the idea of sense, not, well, if this happens, it's like if God is faithful, He will deliver us. Well, God is faithful. So when we say that, if, if God be true... Well, that means since God is true. And that's the idea of the word if there, since there be any consolation in Christ. These qualities come from God. The comfort of love comes from God. If any fellowship of the Spirit bows in mercies, the word bows has the idea of inner affections. It's the most inner part of you. It's the most, most inner feelings of love that you have and tender mercies. And these things come from God because this is who God is. God is a God of consolation, a God that loves us and comforts us because He loves us. God is one who, who fellowships with us. He seeks our fellowship. God is one who is tender towards us. God, if you'll allow me to say it this way, He is affectionate towards us. He knows your name. He's not distant. Could I say it this way? God is not formal in that sense. And mercies, these qualities come from God. Fulfill ye my joy, verse 2, that ye be like-minded. Notice these qualities of unity. Having the same love, being of one accord one mind. Look at that, like-minded, same love, one accord, one mind. And we'll deal with these later. These these are all expressions of unity, but they do not describe our country. They do not describe many homes, and they, and they do not describe many churches. And then he says in verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory." It means for conceit or selfishness, but in lowliness and humility of mind, because that's where humility starts. It's what you think about yourself. Let each esteem or value other people better than themselves. Put other people ahead of yourself. And verse 4, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So God is the source of unity, but what does it look like? What are the evidences of it in a home, in a church, even in a friendship? Some people don't have friends. They, they make short-term acquaintances, and then the friendship breaks up. I'm going to tell you why, because you, you, you do not practice... And I'm just going to give you one idea this morning with a couple of apples. Okay, you don't practice what I'm going to teach this morning. And you keep wondering, well, how come I can't get close to people? Because it's all about you. Look, not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. One of the buzzwords in, in business books and in our culture for, for healthy companies is the word c- culture that That company has a good culture. My son John coaches a a baseball team in Chattanooga, a public school team he 's a varsity baseball coach and every year he graduates some kids and they get younger kids come in and every year he 's always working on his culture. Now culture is defined in different ways. Some people say your culture is the way you do things. Well, that's kind of a surface definition. Your culture, your family has a culture. The way you do, but it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. By the way, you have a culture. I'm using business word. You have a brand. You have a signature. When people think about your name, they think about a quality. Now, subconsciously, we don't even think about that. But when people think about you, they think about a particular character quality good or bad when they think about me and when they think about our fame when people think about our church when they visit our church good or bad they think about a cultural quality they think about a culture and so in a good way I've done some reading not for this message but about these these healthy companies have healthy cultures well One of the the cultures that we're looking for in our families, because families make up churches, is is, is that of unity. Unity is not luck. Well, you you just lucked out by by marrying that person. You lucked out by having a a good family. You lucked out by having a good church. No, there's no luck to it. There, There are certain qualities. There are certain attributes. There are certain things that are inherent in that relationship, I'm going to use the word again, in that culture that you do and that you do not do. And if you infect it with certain things, the unity begins to erode. Now, here, here are the qualities. Verse 1. Consolation. If you lack consolation in your relationships, you're not going to have unity. Comfort of love, that's another one. Fellowship, and then bowels and mercies, and we'll explain that later, because as I kind of humorously, that's an old English word which means just affections. And it has the idea of, of external affection that begins on the inside. I kindly say this, but some of you are not affectionate. Well, I'm just not that way. I, I'm from the Midwest, so I'm just not affectionate. Well, that's your problem. Yeah, I'm just not like that. Well, God is. Bowels and mercies. It touches you deeply. See, sometimes you're touched. You say, but, well, I feel it, but I don't say it. You know, there's two ways to be a hypocrite. One way is to say it and not feel it. But the other way is to feel it and not say it. And it's dangerous sometimes when we do not feel it. I want to spend some time this morning in our message on the word consolation. Paul said, if there, verse 1, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, any consolation in Christ. Let's, let's look at the word consolation, a powerful attribute. If you, if you have consolation, which is a gift of God that God brings to you, you and I'll show you this scripture in a moment. You are a treasured asset in your family. You know, we we send notes to people when people die. Sometimes it says it on the card or or you'll write it. I, I my consolations be with you. And I say this kindly, I, I don't mean to, you know, in an ugly way, but most people don't even know what it means. It's just a word we use. But some of you are really good consolers. It's a divine quality. It's who God is. The Bible says, any consolation in Christ, God is a consoler. And you especially need it when when you're trying to make peace with people. When you hurt someone, you need to learn to console when someone has had a broken heart. Now, the word consolation means to comfort. Of course, the root word is to console, but I want to dig a little deeper on that. And the definition is up here for us. It means to speak words of peace. It comes from the Latin word, consolari. The word con, it's a compound word, means with. Solari means to soothe. Con, with, solari means consolari, to soothe with. So I'm sending cons. My consolations are with you. Well, what are you soothing with? It means to soothe with your presence, your words, and your actions. This is what it means. This is what God does. He he comforts us, He soothes our wounds, He soothes our disappointments, He soothes our griefs through His presence. Through his words, through his actions, through his past and present actions, with his gentleness and in our distresses. Now, for, for this to be true, it means that we live in a world of hurt, of disappointment, in a world of grief, and in a world of sorrow. Now, that's obvious, And it begs the question, and it's really a rhetorical question with an obvious answer is there a need for consolation? Well, absolutely. Every person in here, you have a job description in Philippians 2 1 to be a consoler. And there it is. To learn to speak words of peace. When your presence, your words, and your actions can make a difference because someone is grieving, because they're hurting. Because they're broken or when it's a peacemaking situation, when they're agitated, when they're disturbed, when they're upset, and you can come in and you can console them. It doesn't mean you compromise, but you console them. Stay with me. This can be transformed, some of you, and improve your marriage, your relationships, and, and make you a better friend light years. And improve unity in any relationship and reduce conflict. Some of the antonyms of console are to agitate, to discourage, to antagonize, to annoy, to upset, to stir up trouble. Now, how do we do that? We do that with our presence and our words, just like we console people with our words. We upset, we agitate with our presence and our words. We discourage with our words. We annoy people with our presence. You're not neutral. When you walk into a situation, you're either consoling or you're sowing the seeds of disunity. This quality of consolation. Is by the Holy Spirit of God put it here? If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, the Holy Spirit has this. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Father. I gave it to you last week. All of the examples the Father, the Son, the Spirit, they have this quality of consoling. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ and He lives in you through His Spirit, you have this resource, this desire to be a consoler. Some people, they make the situation worse by their words, by their presence. So every day, every day when I wake up in the morning, every conversation I have with my wife and the people I meet that day, when I walk on the property here at the church this morning, I choose to speak words. Are you with me? That are soothing or they're agitating, I'm making that choice. I'm either a consoler or I'm troubling people. Early on, decades ago, I I taught, I haven't taught this, this idea, it's not my idea, I borrowed it from someone else, but I taught it to our staff. And I use the metaphor, I borrowed it from someone else, but the metaphor of a fire. So, when you come upon a problem or trouble, or someone has a complaint, and it's a fire, every time you come upon a situation, you have two buckets. And one bucket, you have gasoline, and the other bucket, you have water. And so, you come upon this problem, you have this complaint. You're you're dealing with this this negative situation, and there's a fire. You're either going to pour gasoline on it, or you're going to pour water on it. The water, metaphorically, is consolation. The gasoline is agitation. And the gasoline always makes the problem worse. And again, this is not rocket science. And I know as a leader, and some of you that run businesses or are in charge of things, you've had to put out fires that were unnecessary because someone was not wise, because they're expert at using buckets of gasoline when the Holy Spirit of God has given us water to diffuse things. And we do that by consoling. Unity is not... An accident in a marriage, in a family, in a church. It is the byproduct of being intentional about the kind of words you use, especially in conflict when words of comfort, words of peace, words of grace, as opposed to words of distress, words of agitation are used. God is a consoler. He lives in you. There's a wonderful passage in Psalm 18. We don't have time to look at all of it, but David wrote Psalm 18. He was running from Saul. It's a long chapter. I think there's 50 verses in it. And he's just crying out to God and he's saying, God, I, I need you to help me. Saul's trying to kill me and he's giving this to God. God. And right in the middle, I think it's about 50 verses, but about about verse 35. In Psalm 18 and verse 35, David, he attributes some things to God. It's a very unique verse. Here's what he says to God in a prayer. God, thou hast also given me the shield, a shield protects of salvation. You protect me from my enemies. And thy right hand, which is the hand of favor, you have favored me. Thou hast holding me up in your right hand, you have favored me. And thy, and I'm going to misquote it, and thy, notice the thy's, he's quoting to God, this is what you've done for me. And in his prayer, he says, and thy greatness hath made me great. But the Holy Spirit of God inspired him to put this down. And David wrote this down because this is this is what not only motivated David, it's what made David great. But the word great there doesn't mean it advanced him externally. David wasn't looking to be the king. The word great there means to increase. It means to, to be enlarged, not just externally, but internally. And I think what he's saying here is you've made me great not just as a king. Here's what he's saying. Lord, you've made me great to be able to respect Saul when he's trying to take my life. And you've done something in my life, in my heart, not just to promote me, but you have enlarged me. You you have done something in me. And I want you to notice what he says to God there in Psalm 1835. In thy gentleness... Thy gentleness hath made me great. I remember, and Greg, you were probably there when the administrator, the president of ABW, Wendell Kempton, preached on this verse. I had read it before in my devotions, but one day at the missions conference, he, he preached from this verse when I was in school. And I listened intently because that verse had always grabbed me. And he just gave the whole... Time to preaching on that verse. Thy gentleness. Thy gentleness. And he's talking to God. God, your gentleness has made me great. The word gentleness means meekness. The word meek means mild. Lord, you you have not you have been kind to me. You've been humble with me when I have been rash. You've been gracious to me. And Lord, because of the way you treated me, it changed me internally. This is what he's saying. You changed my life. And when I was thinking about this and just pondering this, I thought, I wonder how many people that I have short-circuited their spiritual growth because of my disagreeable spirit. Because I wasn't gentle and they're not great or they did not increase or I did not help them to reach on their pathway to reach their divine potential because I wasn't, didn't have the consolation in Christ. It troubles me. I I won't use illustrations, they're not apropos for it, it wouldn't help. But I, I began to think about times in my own life when when um, my heart was broken in school, when, when people tried to motivate me by belittling me and by mocking me, especially coaches. Well, boy, I really needed that. It helped me reach my potential. It didn't me. It didn't help me. Wasn't good for me. David said, Lord, your gentleness, your gentleness helped me reach my capacity internally, and it made me kingly material, if you will. When I was a youth pastor in Virginia, one of our our teenagers, I got to go here and get some water. I think I left it over here. I'm going to lose my voice. One of our teenagers came to me and he was real excited about something that he had, he had done. Just real excited about an activity that he had gotten involved with. I'd want him to Christ. And he said, hey, guess what happened? And he told me where he'd gone and what it, he had done. And he thought that I would be excited for him, and I, I was a little bit disappointed. And so um, I remember, you know, talking to him, and and I remember the Holy Spirit said, "Don't, don't, don't fuss at him right now. Don't, don't, don't respond." You know, timing is everything. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will say, you need to deal with it now. Sometimes he'll say, you need to restrain and deal with this later. It's not the time. Years later, that that teenager grew up and he said, you know, do you remember the time when I told you about? I said, I remember that. He said, do you know what I remember about that? I said, what? He said, I remember when I told you I thought you were going to be excited, but I could tell that you were, there, there was something wasn't right. But you, here's what he said. He said, you didn't fuss at me. He said, you you, you wanted to, I felt like, okay, he wants to, I, I didn't do something right. And the Holy Spirit began to, to speak to me. And I said, I still remember, and I began to tell him, fill in the details of it, because I said, I, I just didn't know what to do, and I pulled back, and I began to pray for you, and so forth. And that young man later came here and served as one of our pastors, and is now in the Dominican, Brother Gary Byrd. We had a conversation about that years ago. Listen, we crush people with our words, That are said at the wrong time. David said, Lord, your gentleness has made me great. Since we're indwelt by God, He has given you this desire and ability to do the same thing. He can reproduce this heart. If you're a Christian, you already have the desire. Another illustration, you want to jot it down, in the book of Philemon, Paul was writing to this man, this Christian man, about a prisoner named Onesimus. And uh, he points out a character quality to Philemon. And Philemon in verse 7, I wish I could have known this man. And he told Philemon, he said, For we have great joy, and here's the word, and consolation in thy love. And so many of the words in Philippians 2, 1 are here. And he's talking to this one man. And he's writing a letter to him to help Onesimus. But notice what he says about Philemon. He says, we have great joy and consolation in your love. Because of the bowels of the saints, the affections, the innermost being, when the saints are with you. Philemon, they are refreshed. They are refreshed by you, brother refreshed by you the word refreshed there means t- to relax to be exempt from stress to be at ease to be rested listen if you don't learn to console people when people around you they're tense they can't relax Because you don't know how to encourage, you don't know how to comfort, you don't know how to bless people. The dictionary definition of refresh is to give new strength, to give new energy, to reinvigorate, to restore, to renew. God does this for me. Isaiah 40, 31. He He restores my strength. He He gives me energy energy. And sometimes not the physical energy I want, but he gives me emotional and spiritual energy. And the Bible says, watch this. He says, he says, Philemon, the saints are refreshed by you. And it was the work of God in this man's life, the work of consolation, that God was working through him so that when people were around him, the people were refreshed. People that are discouragers, that are easily offended, or that easily offend other people. They damage the environment. Let me put it this way. They damage the culture. And they don't bring unity. And I'm not just talking about the church. I'm talking about your small group at work, at home, or wherever you go. And many people, they don't even realize it. They focus on the negative. They see the negative qualities of people. And then that negative issue becomes a rallying point. Did you see that? Did you notice that? Well, no, no, I didn't. But now, now, that, you, now that you think about it, I do. I, I, I'm going to start noticing that. And there's no consolation in it at all. Nobody's refreshed. Nobody's edified. Nobody's helped, especially someone that that is in distress. I thought about a story in Numbers 13 when Joshua sent out the 12 spies. And two came back with a good report. That was Joshua and Caleb. And ten came back, the Bible says, with an evil report. Not a bad report, an evil report, the Bible says. And it was evil... Because it lacked faith. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. We don't even know their names. We know Joshua and Caleb. But here's the thing. It's, and I'm not talking about the power of positive thinking. But because it lacked faith, these other men, they, they focused on on Problems. And it summarizes it in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 38. I want you to look at this. I think we have the verse for you. In Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 38. And the Bible says, Whither shall we go up? This is what the people said. Uh, how, how are we going to do that? How are we going to go into the land? And I have this underlined. Our brethren have discouraged our heart. Now Joshua and Caleb didn't. Our brethren have discouraged our heart, saying with their words, the people is greater and taller than us. The cities are great. They're walled up to heaven. Moreover, we've seen the sons of the Nakams, These were the giants that were there. But notice it. Our brethren have discouraged our heart, By what they said. And it didn't bring the people together. They they weren't consoling. Well, you know, there's some problems, but hey, we can do this. God can help us. Doesn't mean you ignore the truth. Yeah, there's some enemies. Yeah, there's some giants. But but we have God. We, We can do this. There was no consolation, there was no encouragement, there was no comfort. When they were with them, with their presence, rather than bringing comfort, rather than bringing hope, rather than bringing life, they brought death. Man, there's people like that when you see them coming, and some of you don't even know it's you, and some of you have never thought about this. But they shrink your spirit. Contrast this with Jesus. In John chapter 1 and verse 42... The Bible tells about the conversion of Simon Peter. And it says there, And he, this is Andrew, brought him, Peter, to Jesus. He brought his brother to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, that is Simon Peter, he said, Thou art Simon. Now that's his old name, which means little pebble. By the way, any time... Peter backslid from Jesus. Jesus always called him Simon. He usually used his name twice, Simon, Simon, to remind him, hey, you're going backwards, son. Thou art Simon, the son of Jonas. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation of stone. The word Cephas is the Aramaic word for Peter, which means a boulder, like a... a if I had a little rock up here like this, that, that would be Simon. And and Peter or Cephas would be like, like a boulder about the size of this platform. Now here's what I underlined in my Bible. Thou art, but thou shalt be. This is what you are, but this is what you will be. Oh man. Give me some of that. Get me me close to someone that in my times of weakness, in my times of failure, in my times of insignificance. Yes, I know. I know I'm Simon. This this is what I am. But with Jesus, this is what what I can be. There's another line in Mark chapter 1 in verse 17. When Jesus said this, he said, He said unto them, He told the four disciples, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. He said, come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. You know, we focus on the fishers of men, but you know what I have underlined? I will make you to become. And Jesus assumes the responsibility for their development. He sees your potential. He sees their hope. I will, I will make you to become. Do you know what he's doing there? He's consoling them. Well, I don't think you I don't think you can ever do it. You know, you guys are just fishermen. You're just simple. You're not educated. I don't know. We'll work with what we have. I love being a baseball coach. But it wasn't about the strategy or winning games. It was working with those boys who didn't have daddies. And loving those kids and believing in them. Some of them I had for one year, some for two, some of them for five and six years. Speaking hope into their life. And loving them. And trying to shepherd them. And we need some consolers would you be a consoler in your home in your office in this church and then notice in the ministry of restorations in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 the Bible says brethren if a man be overtaken in a fault ye which are spiritual restore such in one and why is it that a spiritual person is assigned this task because they're they're at a very vulnerable place. now, who is a spiritual person it's a person that's Galatians six and a few verses earlier he says in galatians five twenty two the fruit of the spirit is, and it gives these nine qualities. And one of those qualities is meekness, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness. Meekness is, involves restraint. It's not weakness, but it's power in reserve. And he says, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Hey, if it can be done, I can do it and i'm not any better than you and i want to help you and then he goes on in verse 2 and there it says bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of christ in verse 1 or verse 3 i think it's he says bear your own burden verse 2 he says bear you one another's burden verse 3 is a verse for backpack now you carry that's yours Verse 2 is, is a verse for a big log that nobody can carry by themselves. And we have a responsibility to help people carry their other burdens they can't carry. And then he says, and so fulfill the law of Christ, which the law of Christ is to love one another as I have loved you. And part of that, part of that law is consolation, consoling. Showing up, speaking hope, being with them, ministering with them, loving them, giving them hope. So what are the obstacles? I'll give you three. I'll just mention them. Why do people struggle with this? Number one, it's because one doesn't know Christ personally. They've never been saved. You cannot have the fruits of this kind of life if you do not have the root, which is Christ. Now, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, the Lord Jesus Christ lives in you, and you have the potential to be a consoler. When you're hurting, He shows up in your life. You have to receive the ministry, but He's there. And if you've been saved through the Spirit of Christ, He lives in you to be able to do this for other people. In John chapter 10 and verse 10 the thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, to destroy. This is what the enemy does. This is what Satan does. He's destructive. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life. They have it more abundantly. He came to give you not just eternal life, but he came to give you an abundant life in this temporal life right now. And to help people have that life, like Philemon did. To refresh people. That's what Christians are supposed to do. This to win them to Christ and to refresh people, be a blessing. One of the obstacles is one doesn't know Christ personally. Number two, one isn't walking with God. Maybe you are saved, but you don't know Him well, and you become a carnal or a fleshly person. You're you're operating out of the flesh. You're not walking with him. 1 Corinthians 3 3 says, Ye are yet carnal. And here's how a carnal person lives. There's among you envying strife and divisions. Are you not yet carnal? Walk as men. Envying strife, divisions. You're competing, you're complaining, but you're not consoling. You're so concerned about the way you look and who's first. You're not looking for people with broken hearts. You're not assuming your mantle, your responsibility. To just, hey, I'm going to walk with them through this and help them. And then thirdly, the third obstacle is, one, is grown up in a negative environment. Some of you have a, your your mind is just negative. It's a habit, just a you just think negative thoughts. It's part of your personality, and that's why Romans twelve says you need to have have a transformed mind. Maybe you had a, a negative family. You had negative situations. It wasn't modeled. You do not understand the power the power of someone consoling in your life. You never had it modeled. God does it for you if you'll receive it. It's so powerful. It's transformative. We had a, a man in our church many years ago. You don't know who this is and you say, well, I'm going to figure it out. Well, whoever it is you're thinking about, that's not who it is. And... uh, he wasn't mean, but he was negative. The sad, thing, uh, the sad part is he was very faithful to church. And he liked to talk to me. And for, for most pastors, after church, they're a little bit tired. Their mind is tired, their emotions are tired. So I don't want you to say, I don't want to talk to you, I don't mean that. But it's it's difficult to deal with difficult things after you preach because you just you just can't deal with it. You, just, you have to, but it's just tough. And I learned it didn't take long that every every exchange I had with him it wasn't mean. It was just negative. I mean, it was just negative. And I'd see him walking up the aisle, and my stomach would get in a knot. Stop smiling, Pam. You don't know who it is. It's not Andy. It is not Andy. Andy always blesses me. This, my stomach was, oh man, here he comes. Here he comes. And sure enough, it will be a, a complaint about something. And then just like uh, backing up, you know, these old trucks, you don't ever want to get behind them. They pick up these porter Johns. You ever see him? He said, I don't want to get behind that truck. He bails like this. He said, I just kind of get behind him so I don't, in case something happens. It was like, you know, beep, beep, beep. He just dumped it at me. Well, there it is. I know what I'm supposed to do with that. Now, for some of you, that's the only thing you'll remember this morning. We had another dear brother, and you said, well, "Preacher, you should talk about these people." Well, hey, it's my sermon; I can do it. <laughs> oh man, he he would he would console me, but he had a philosophy. It was a sandwich mes- method. And those of you who have been taught this in business that what you do is you what you do is you don't ever tell something negative without giving something positive. So, you take a loaf of bread and you put, give them some, a positive and then a negative and then close with a positive. And it's a sandwich and it works. By the way, that's called a baloney sandwich. <laughs> because after, after a while, if you use that with your kids, they figure it out and all they look for is a criticism and they don't hear whatever you've said. And he used that with me all the time. So I knew that whatever he said, well, okay, now get to what you really want to say. I, I Whatever you say is not, there's no validation in, in any of the, the, just go ahead and get to the baloney, Because I know the, the front ends of the sandwich aren't really what, what you want to talk to me about. It was just difficult. I'm not saying you don't have difficult conversations. Are you Are you characterized? Are you characterized by that in your family or in your business, or in a church where that's you, where you're that person? My grandfather died Labor Day weekend in nineteen seventy one I've told you some of you this story and and uh I went to the house. I was thirteen years old, and my mom was taking care of my grandmother, and I knew him longer than anybody five years older than my brother, a year and a half older than my sister. I was devastated. I was named after him. And I was sitting in a chair in the living room. My heart was hurting. I went back and saw him with his head leaned back and the ambulance people working on on him. And I knew he was gone. It was devastating. And a family friend, my mom had called It was a Saturday morning named Max Smith. In fact, I did Max's funeral uh, years ago. We used to go camping with them in Gunnersville. And the door opened at my grandparents' house. My father was away on a bus trip in Atlanta, Georgia, carrying Butler High School football team. I wanted my dad so bad. And I was all alone. And Matt came in, a family friend. He walked in the door and he stood by me. I was sitting there weeping. He put his hand on my shoulder. He just stood there. And I knew him. He was my fourth grade Sunday school teacher. And he just stood by me. And 50, 51 years ago, I still remember it. And he had consoled me on other occasions, but that ministered to my heart. We open our hearts to people that console us so they can correct us later. One day I was... In the office, we had a Christian school uh, in the main office. It's over in our children's wing now before we gutted it and changed it. We had classrooms over here. And I heard a staff member complaining about a phone call that someone had made. They said, well, she keeps calling. It's the same thing over and over, just negative and negative. just keeps calling, and not satisfied with our answers, and I said, well, "What's what's going on? What, what's what's the issue?" And so they told me she's mad at at our church and school because we built the gym. I said, "Well, let, let me have the number." So they gave me the number, and I went in the office and I called. I called her. I I didn't know her. I never met her. And I called her. And she did complain very angrily. And I said, "Uh, ma'am, would you mind if I came by to visit you today or tomorrow sometime? Would that be okay? She said, well, yeah, I guess so. I went over there and went into her house. And I discovered a widow lady whose husband had died within the year. She let me sit down in her living room. And I said, tell me, tell me what's wrong. And she said, well, we bought this house several years ago. And gave me the time frame seven or eight years ago, whatever. And we love the view here. And they started building that gym over there. And it ruined our view. It lowered our property value. And now... I look out my kitchen window and I just see this big brown steel thing. You want to see it? I said, "Yes, ma'am." We got up and we walked from the living room into her kitchen, and she looked the pointed out the window. Sure enough, it was just. She said, "What do you think?" I said, "It really is ugly." I said, "I'm so sorry." And she said, "And that's not all." She said, "I." I Looked and I saw some of the boys from the schools because some of my tree limbs are hanging over on your property. And I looked out and some of the boys from the schools were cleaning up your property, throwing the limbs into my yard that had fallen into your. She was angry. And I said, man, we're wrong about that. We shouldn't have done that. And I said, I'm so sorry. I said, tell me, tell me, did you grow up in Huntsville. she began to tell me her story, and I found out she knew my family. She knew my mom and dad. And we became friends. And I said, I can't tear the building down. And I said, but I sincerely apologize for that. I said, I will tell you this. I'm going to send some guys over. We're going to take all those limbs out of your yard, and we'll keep your yard clean. and, And that will never happen again. And here's my phone number. It's not the school number. It's my phone number. If you need anything, you call me. And we became friends. And there's a verse in the Bible, I thought, as I was putting this together in Proverbs 16, 7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. I want to ask you a question. What kind of words kind of words do you use with people that are, they're in distress and they're in grief or they're in sorrow or they're angry at you or at someone? How do you deal with that? Do you become defensive? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called... The children of God. We watched a video on Sunday school this morning about submission and about humility. We, we, we are so self-absorbed. It's my way or the highway, and we often forget about our responsibility to to protect the culture. Where the heart of God is exhibited in people through their words in times of their distress. I like to be ministered to, don't you? Why don't you become that person? If thou therefore be any consolation in Christ. You know, the, the Bible is true. We just look at one line. But it can change you, and through changing you, it can change your home, it can change your class, it can change your office, it can change your friendships, it can change our church. Would you bow your head with me this morning?